We're looking at Daniel 6 this morning, and this is one of those passages that we say sometimes runs the risk of being uh, what we call a Charlie Brown passage, in that, if you remember Charlie Brown, the old kids cartoon was so oriented toward kids, allegedly, that when adults spoke, you didn't hear them. All you heard was, wah, 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 wah. It didn't matter what adult was speaking, that's all you heard. You heard sound and noise, uh, you, all, you heard all noise and no signal. You didn't hear anything specific. Specific. The problem with Daniel 6 and Daniel in the lion's den, as you know it and you've heard it, it's in almost every, it's certainly in every children's Bible, most of it, not the very end, which gets a little bit more graphic. But um, it, so when we hear it, the danger is we just miss it. So I'm going to pray just briefly for the Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts and for my speaking and your hearing that we don't, we don't miss what the Lord might have for us. So let me pray. Lord, help us make plain what is good and true. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that you do that surgical but good work that leads unto healing by your spirit now for us. In Christ's name, amen. Into the Unknown is the title. I want to preclude a couple questions that Paul Johnson asked me before the first service. This has nothing to do with Frozen. Apparently, this is important to Frozen 2. I didn't know that. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Frozen in a sermon, and then we sang a song right after that had a line similar to Frozen in it. And everybody asked me, did I do that on purpose? I'm like, no, of course I didn't do that on purpose. I haven't even gotten to Frozen 2 yet. Uh, so it's <laughs> Into the Unknown has nothing to do with Frozen. It has to do with the reality that when we follow Jesus, we don't know where that will take us. But we do know who goes with us. That's the reality. That's what we got. Uh, that may not make us comfortable, but we're called to set our affections on that reality because that's how the Lord often operates. When we got married a few years ago, many years ago now, almost 30 years ago, somebody gave us a, a, a gift for our wedding. It was a well-meaning gift. It was a cross-stitch I don't know what you call it, a cross-stitch thing, uh, that we're supposed to put on our wall. Not going to happen, but we're going to put that. And it was well-meaning, it was kind, and it was the Bible verse, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope, plans to do you uh, good and not harm. And I totally know that that was a well-intended gift. It was a kind gift, and we're very thankful. Uh, I do remember opening that and saying to Carmen, I hope it doesn't take us 70 years to become happy in our marriage because that's a prophecy in Daniel 29, 11 for something the Lord would do for his people 70 years from the date when he spoke it. I know the plans I have for you. So if you had that on your fridge, guess what? It's for 70 years from when it was spoken. Um, also the problem with marrying a seminary student, I suppose, but uh, you know, being too critical. That's a prophecy for 70 years off that God gave to his people when they were heading into exile. But just before that is a very important passage of scripture that gives sort of marching orders for God's people in exile. And I want to briefly read that to you, but first remind you that exile is one of the metaphors the Bible invites us to see our time in life with as well. First Peter picks up this idea of exile and says, you friends are in exile. What that means is you are not home yet or home is not here yet. At the restoration of all things, if, if you will, home will rush up to meet us. And so we are in a time in between the times. And yet in the gospel, in Jesus, by union with him, we, we, are, we are present to our real home, which is Christ, 
But we live in exile right now, so we can say that we are at home in Jesus, but in exile in this world. And we've been getting at that for a few weeks by looking at the book of Daniel, which is literature written for the people of God when they were in physical exile in the 6th century BC. And then we see, especially in the New Testament book of 1 Peter, a lot of that language is picked up and dropped onto our plates for us to consider ourselves in exile. But I want to read the instructions God gave to his people as they were heading into exile. It's on the back of your insert. Jeremiah 29, what you need to know is there was a false prophet who rose up and said, hey, you're going to be brought back in just a couple years, so don't do anything. Huddle together, hold on, and God will bring you back in a few months. Jeremiah says, no, it's going to be actually 70 years. So here's what I want you to do in the interim. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In its good you will find your good. So what he's saying is, friends, you're going to be in exile for a while. I don't want you to be sequestered off into a religious huddle. To the best of your ability, I want you to be present in and present to your culture. I want you to do good work. I want you to treat this as your home. Even though it's a temporary reality, it's a long reality, 70 years at the beginning. I want you to treat it as if you uh, own this place, as if you live here. I want you to seek its good. It's a way to love your neighbor. And oh, by the way, if you seek its good, it's likely to do you good too because you live here. So this call is, even in Babylon, which was a very, compared to where they were coming from, a very pagan environment, God says to his people, I know it's not comfortable, but I want you to seek its good. And so as Jesus would say, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. Not uh, that of the world, it's like out of, you're not rooted in this world, you're present here. But your life or your identity, your meaning, purpose isn't rooted here, it's, but you are present here. And here you'll demonstrate my life-giving presence as well. So for us, friends, here's, a, here's an inducement to pray for the city of Indianapolis. Do you know why? Because this is where you're in exile. Most of you, if you're somewhere else, pray for that. Pray for Indy too. But there's not a, we don't have an invitation to an adversarial relationship with our culture here. What we have is saying, I want you present, but in a distinct way as my people. The whole, you know, giving sons and daughters in marriage and multiplying there is, is Jewish speak for maintain my ways. Marry within the faith and then pass that on to the next generation. You be my distinct people, but not huddled away. You be my distinct people in your normal walk of life, blessing the culture you're around. Of course, this will bring us into conflict, right? To be distinct people of God, blessing a culture that doesn't value all that, it's messy, Cool, that's right. You know that, I know that, Daniel knows that. That's why we have the book of Daniel, among other things. Daniel 6 is about Daniel living out this passage. I mean, the whole book really is, but this is about Daniel living out this passage. And so what we see, if you open up your insert here in the red, here's where we're going at. In exile, God empowers his people for a distinguished faithfulness or a distinct faithfulness through two easy means. One, prayer. The second, just the promise of his presence. 
In your life in exile, friends, you, me, we are empowered for a distinguished faithfulness or a distinct faithfulness wherever we are through prayer and through the promise of God's gracious presence. So that's what we're going to look at today in the book of Daniel. Daniel is an example for us and he's much more than that. Daniel is an example and he's a sign pointing forward to what we would say is a new and better Daniel who exercised a distinct faithfulness for his people, namely Jesus himself. And so when we read the book of Daniel, we, we know even how the gospels are written that we're invited to see through two lenses. One is Daniel, but one is Jesus too. And so we're going to point that out as we go. But still start Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Now as a historical note, some of you know this, nobody knows anything about the name Darius outside of the Bible. So that's caused some critics to say, well, that Bible just made it up, okay? So, but do remember last week, Belshazzar, nobody knew anything about Belshazzar until the, the Nabonidus style was discovered in archaeology. So it could be that. It could be just we haven't discovered archaeologically Darius. Uh, there's a famous psycholo- uh, psychologist, archaeologist named Edwin Yamauchi who said, you have to understand that we know we, we see all these movies like Indiana Jones but only a fraction of all the ancient sites have been discovered. And all, of all those discovered, only a fraction have been excavated. So only a fra- like one one thousandth of all the stuff has been excavated. That's it. So we're just, you know, we're kind of walking around blind archaeologically. So it might be we haven't discovered who Darius was yet. There's a uh, famous Assyriologist named D.J. Wiseman, Donald Wiseman, who thinks that Darius was actually the throne name of King Cyrus, Maybe that's it. Maybe he's the name of another governor. We don't know. Uh, what we do know is Daniel, because of his character, somehow makes the cut. Babylon is ruling. They, the Persians come in, wipe away Babylon, and Daniel, who is a, court, a, lo- a loyal court servant in Babylon, gets, he gets held over to the next administration. So he's not, he served Babylon, but he wasn't a nationalist that would die to go to the death. They saw Daniel, Daniel's pretty good. So let's hire him as well. He's got some quality. And this event is probably a few years after the writing on the wall, which means Daniel's like 83 years old, 80 to 85 years old. So I don't know how old you picture Daniel in the lion's den or how old the children's Bible. It should be like an 80-something-year-old person. Right? So he's not fending off any lions. Verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel, as it says in verse three, was distinguished in his service, distinct, set apart, because he had what was called an excellent spirit, which meant, we don't really know what it means. He did his stuff really well. Probably not a spiritual thing other than like, man, he's got a lot of gusto. He just gets the job done. He thinks about it. He looks ahead. He sees the problems. He gets the job done. He gives himself to his work. He has an excellent spirit about him. 
right? Some of our, uh, some of our volunteers do that. I'm always, I'm always amazed at how Emily Winter thinks of things and does things that I haven't begun to think of yet. Like, wow, you did that already. Again, that's amazing. Uh, she has excellent spirit about her, right? I'm not saying that other staff doesn't. Emily's just like, wow, that's amazing. Daniel was this way. We know from chapter one that he was a good student. He and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, studied, and they did better than the other students. They were smart, and they gave themselves to learning. It's one thing to be smart. It's another thing to do that and give yourself to learning. They exceeded all their contemporaries. He lived out his convictions, obviously, was he served, because he served an empire with which he fundamentally disagreed. Babylon was a pagan empire. Persia was a pagan empire. Some of you serve companies, you're like, I'm not quite so sure about the sort of the morality and the upper structure of these companies. Daniel, right? He's like, man, these guys are terrible. And yet he found a way to serve with integrity, not compromising his own integrity. Was that clean? No. Was it messy? Yes. Was there all kinds of ethical questions he probably had to wrestle through with any, any wise people he could find? Certainly. This is what it is to be a Christian, right? We, we're uncompromisingly committed to Jesus and we're in this world. We're trying to figure this out. Tim Keller in his study on Daniel says, Daniel was fair and broad-minded in his sympathies and in his work for the common good, but he was exclusive in his devotion to the one true Lord of the world. I think that's good. We generally want to be for as much as we can, seek the common good as the distinct people of God. This is what Daniel is living out here. Even though he knew it was a temporary assignment, Daniel, we know from Daniel 9, understood that that 70 years was almost up. Not exactly sure when because we weren't sure when it started. But he knew we are going to go back to the promised land soon. And yet he continued to work with quality and honor. So he was renting, but he's acting like he was owning. We know, as I said before, he was not absolutely committed to the former empire because he's still alive. He survived the transition. He wasn't a nationalist in that sense. He did good work without making his employment his idol. We'll talk more about that in a second. In fact, it was so good that his adversaries were jealous of him and he was going to be promoted, right? So there was a triumvirate of three rulers, over 120 governing officials, and above the three was Darius the king. So the there was a plan afoot to raise Daniel above those three, probably replace him, and then it, functionally then, Daniel is the stand-in for the king. And the, the adversaries, as we're going to see, did not like that. They were jealous. But they couldn't find any cause for criticism for his work because he had unimpeachable character. This is not he, he was perfect in what he did. It just There was nothing really to get a hold of in criticizing his work. And so just as an aside, really not from this text, but it points to it, this is a little apologetic to do good work as the people of God. It is a biblical value to do good work. I'm not exactly talking about Weber's Protestant work ethic, although not completely different than that. Uh, but we don't want to treat our work as an idol. So it's not a source of life. Your work won't complete you. You ought probably not try to get your identity from your work. Um, it doesn't give you meaning. You can do meaningful work, but we probably ought not receive meaning from our work. And sometimes in Christian circles, we use language like uh, God's called me to this vocation. I've got a calling. I understand what you mean. 
providentially he's arranged circumstances so you can do this and you've got a real skill, you have a passion. Just understand the Bible really doesn't use the word calling that way, okay? And probably that's something we can do in the last 75 years and that's it. It's a late modern age invention where you can say, I'm 17, what do I want to do with my life? You know, rewind three generations of my family. When I'm 17, I'm like, well, am I gonna be a farmer or a coal miner? Because why? My mom's side was farmers, my dad's side was coal miners. That's it. You did what your parents did for almost all of human history. Now, as a product of lots of things in our time, we can say, what do I want to do? What fulfills me? Like, that was just, that's a brand new question in history. Um, But we do want to do good work, whatever our work is. If you have a job, a J-O-B, eight to five, nine to five, If you own your own business, if you're an entrepreneur, if you are a student, that's your vocation. If you are a in-home parent or a homemaker, that's your vocation. You may be paid or not paid, whatever level. This is your vocation and it is probably time-wise the place where we live out our walk with Jesus the most. The place where we have the most opportunity to learn from Jesus how he would do our work if he were us. And so this is a call to say, let us, to the extent that we can, exercise an excellent spirit. You may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, fine. But you can work hard, right? Colossians 3, we're reminded whatever we do, work heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that it's from the Lord we receive our inheritance and our reward. In that Be mindful that God delights in the hard, good work of your hand without making your vocation an idol. Again, there's tension here. Okay, back to the story. The other leaders got jealous of Daniel because he did a better job than them and he was recognized for it. And so instead of upping their game, they're like, let's take him out. It's a quality workmates. Again, remember, we're looking through two lenses here. Why did the Jews deliver Jesus to Pilate? Pilate knew they were jealous, John 19, 12. They were jealous that people were coming to Jesus and he could do all these things that they couldn't and so they found a way to deliver him up. The same thing that happens with Daniel. Daniel's full of integrity though, so they can't really find anything to criticize about his work, but they know something else. He has integrity with his God. He's not gonna flex on his commitment to Yahweh, to his God. So they say, okay, if we could find a place where the law of God or the way of his God is out of step with the, the, the law of the culture, we got him. Or if we can make the law of the culture out of step, we've got him. So they hatch a plan. They come together and they trick Darius the king. Who remember, Darius likes Daniel. He's the one that would have elevated him to the second in command. Verse six, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, oh, King Darius, live forever. We love you. It's all about you and your honor and your glory. All the high officials of the kingdom, full stop, that's a complete lie. There are three high officials in the kingdom. They're about to say, all of us got together with everybody and we have a plan. There's no one notable exception to all of the high officials. Daniel, the most important of the three high officials. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, and the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So they play on his pride. You're a great king. You're so great. In fact, we want to honor you by having you sign a law that nobody can pray to any god but you, Darius, for 30 days. Just because we love you. It's all about you. Now, in that culture, the Persian kings were not considered gods. So this would have been a political move, a way of unifying the empire, kind of like getting all of them to bow to the idol before in Daniel. The Persians allowed, as the Babylonians before them, allowed other religions to exist as long as the worshipers of those other religions would also bow the knee to the empire. That is often okay for the people of God. We can coexist with that. Unless that empire makes an absolute claim to authority. Then it gets problematic. Because the lordship of Yahweh in the Old Testament, which becomes the lordship of Jesus in the New Testament, is mutually exclusive to any other ultimate claim of authority. You cannot ultimately pledge ultimate allegiance to two kings. Because eventually they're going to be misaligned. So for us, my children probably got tired of me saying this, you know, at school events, we do the Pledge of Allegiance. I always think in my mind, there's an asterisk, and sometimes I say it out loud. I pledge qualified allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. Not, I'm not trying to be unpatriotic. I'm patriotic with a little p. Uh, pledge qualified allegiance to the flag unless... It forbids me to do something my king commands or commands me to do something my king forbids. Then it is simply a qualified allegiance. We cannot serve two masters. They ask him to sign a law for 30 days that nobody can pray to a higher being than him. It's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. That just meant they they were actually more of a democratic society than the Babylonian uh, society they were replaced because the king didn't have ultimate authority, kind of, but not really. We'll see at the end. So the law of the Medes and the Persians was a law that allegedly the king could not undo once he had done, which he kind of obeyed most of this time. That's why they give the 30-day suggestion. We can use this for 30 days. Darius would have known anything longer than that would have broken apart the empire because you can't prevent people from worshiping permanently just for 30 days. So what I want us to see here, though, is this did not demand idolatry from Daniel. It only forbade him to worship and pray to God for 30 days. It didn't require him to pray to Darius, just forbade him to pray to the God of the scriptures. One might be tempted to ask how many American professing Christians would even notice it was 30 days. I don't know. Like, has it been 31 days since I prayed? Oh, but it'd be fine. I don't know. Um, in Daniel 9, as we said, we, Daniel knew that the time was short. So I'm, if I'm in his shoes, I've got this temptation. We're almost out of here. Let's just dial it back for just a second. I mean, we're really close to going home. We're going to go back. I'm old. I don't, want, I don't have the energy for this. I'm too tired for this. One little compromise. It's just it. I'm not actually actively worshiping Darius. One little change. One little compromise leads to so much freedom. So much acceptance, so much joy, so much future with, with so little trouble. 
The Lord will understand. He knows I'm old. This is not a permanent arrangement. Think of the children. <laughs> it's like, think of how much good I can do after this. Because I could get in real trouble here. I'm going to have to make a real sacrifice, and I wouldn't have to be able to do good after this. I, I, total, I mean, probably we, we're creative, like in our sin and in our righteousness. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. The new law is signed. Daniel's aware of this because he's a governing official. Takes a deep breath, says, here we go. Things will be as they have been with me. And I think we can say here, this is a matter of conscience for Daniel. We are not commanded, they're not commanded in the Old Testament to pray toward Jerusalem with an open window. Like he could have just said, I'm gonna do this, but I'm gonna close the window, right? That's like there's, uh, that's why it's an issue of conscience. The Bible describes praying toward Jerusalem since 1 Kings 8, but they didn't always do that. And since the temple, Solomon's temple had been destroyed about 50 years before this, that was their custom to do that, but they weren't required to do that. It wasn't commanded that they pray this way. And it's helpful to make distinctions in the Bible. You may know this, but it's helpful. Things are, some things are described in the Bible that aren't prescribed. Some things are reported, but they're not commanded, right? So what's reported is people prayed toward Jerusalem. But nobody, no, that's never commanded. People get in trouble with this all the time. Um, he could have shut the window. He could have moved. He could have said, this month I'm not praying toward Jerusalem. God is sovereign. He's everywhere. I'm going to pray just wherever. But I think he knew that would be a compromise. And probably as a leader, he would know the downstream uh, effect of compromise in his life. He was a, obviously a respected leader in the community. And it would just strike me that we, it is good practice for us to pray for public Christians. The Super Bowl's are, you know, going on right now and some of these guys, they're well-meaning followers of Jesus and they're in the NFL because they can bench press 450 pounds and run a 4340. That's why. Not because they're theologians. And then people want to ask them about their faith. And these poor guys are like, I'm just like, oh, please, just keep it short. Don't say anything. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be in that position even as a professional talker of these things. But then I asked to be in that. You know, there we have politicians, we have entertainers, we have athletes, well-known people. I pray for them, right? They're, because their life, uh, when, it, when there's compromise, there has a lot of downstream effect. So pray for our brothers and sisters that are public. We've seen already in Daniel a call for wisdom. Daniel 1, they knew that if they ate the king's food, they would be defiled. That was a wisdom issue. It wasn't a command, but it was a wisdom issue. In Daniel 3, it was an issue of command. You may not worship another idol. You might not have another God before you. That was a biblical command they were called to violate. Here, it's an issue of conscience. And in our world, in exile, we will be dealing with all these things. We'll be invited to break God's commands invited to violate our own conscience and, in, in, you know, always navigating wisdom issues. And what we see in Daniel and in this passage is like regular prayer, God's word shapes us over time. So we have wisdom for these things. What is revealed here is what apparently has shaped Daniel's character for some eight decades. What we would call personal prayer. Personal prayer. And I think there's some instruction 
of how it's for us about how it's described. Verse 10. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward, open toward Jerusalem. Again, they prayed toward the temple or what had been. And the removal of the temple created a crisis of prayer in ancient Israel because the temple was the place where atonement was made. How can we pray without confidence in atonement? Of course, now we, we see prayer through a different lens. Christ has come and made final atonement. We don't have to pray in a certain place, in a certain direction. We pray facing whatever direction you want. We have open access to prayer wherever we are. He got down on his knees. That is humility and engaging the body. Today we would say, well, that helps in forming neural pathways. Okay, fine. But all this says is he got down on his knees, right? He engaged his full body. And I would encourage you to think about like, when you pray, get on your knees. Sometimes, not all the time, I know that. And I'm speaking to you as a person who, like, I go through such highs and lows of prayer in my life. I mean, it's the, it's the wavelengths are very short too, blah, 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 like that. I, it's hard to keep up. I, so I'm not saying this as a successful prayer much of the time, if prayer is consistency. But I encourage you, one way to pray is get on your knees. Um, I know some of you have bad knees. I understand, okay? So I have a torn meniscus in my left knee. It's painful to get on my knees. Sometimes I don't do that because of that. Sometimes I do to remind me that, you know what? We're limited, and it's okay to be limited. That's what prayer, that's what prayer is. Limited people coming to an unlimited God. Three times a day, again, this is a description in Scripture in the Psalms. Evening, morning, and noon, God hears our plea, our complaint, our moaning, our voice. So encourage you to think about praying three times a day as you pray. We encourage daily devotional type stuff in the morning, that's a good start. But maybe think about extending it out, taking a third of it, putting it at lunch, take a third of it, putting it at dinner time. Who knows? Or evening. If you threw in breakfast and dinner, then you're at like five times a day. Who knows? Again, these are descriptions, maybe helpful. He prayed and gave thanks. Praying would be petitioning and making pleas to God, and then thanksgiving, which is often the missing piece in our prayer. I lead a prayer meeting of pastors once a month. And the first time of the prayer meeting is always only, I make them only do, make us only do, adoration and thanksgiving. Okay, these are professional Christians. <laughs> Taylor can tell you, it's often crickets. What is happening, guys? I don't know if it's because we live in the West and we have so much, we kind of expect what we have. Uh, and it's when we, we, when we don't have things that we really appreciate it, sometimes, which is hard, because we, we have most of what we want. And if we, we don't, Amazon Prime is like a day and a half out, really. But even when we have a lot, I mean, if you go on a vacation for two weeks, you come back, I always think, I love my bed. I love my bed, you know. And uh, now if you don't come back and say you love your bed, Make that your next purchase. I'm just pleased. You can have a good bed. But like it's when the absence is there, then oh, that's I really appreciate. We don't have an absence of a lot in our life, so it's hard to appreciate. Do you know what you're thankful for? Maybe it's helpful to articulate that to the Lord. Just pour that out before him as part of our prayer on a regular basis. And he did this before his God, as it says here. This conscious awareness of the presence of God. It's not like God is more present with us when we pray, but we are in, can be intentionally more aware of God's presence when we pray. Uh, oftentimes I will start... We're just taking a four or five breaths in and out, being quiet, saying, Lord, thank you for being present. Just to be consciously aware. And this is as he had done previously. 
This was the normal pattern for Daniel to do this. That's how they knew they would catch him. Oh, Daniel, he's the guy that prays up there in front of that window toward Jerusalem three times a day. Let's make a law because we know we'll catch him. So if your prayer life is up and down, if it's up and down, right? <laughs> um, I want to encourage you to call out to the Lord. I've been really encouraged by this little tiny book. When we'll get some next week or the week after uh, by Michael Reeves called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. It's super short and got, you know, big words and one and a half line spacing. You can feel like you read a whole book and it'll be edifying to you. Uh, and in there, he's got a great quote from Martin Luther, the, the reformational theologian on prayer. Now, some of you have possibly heard a quote from Luther about prayer. Has anybody ever heard Martin Luther say that Luther said something like this, he, I normally pray an hour each day, but I have so much to do today that I need to f- spend the first three hours of today in prayer. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, is it remarkable that everybody has heard of something L- Luther never once said? It's always a, an inducement, better people better pray. He never said that. That's great. But here's what he did say to his friend Philip Melanchthon. This is in Luther's works, number 48. He says, Philip, you extol me too much. Your high opinion of me shames and tortures me since unfortunately I sit here like a fool, hardened in leisure. I pray little, do not sigh, or I do not mourn for the church of God. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I am ardent in the flesh, in lust, laziness, leisure, and sleepiness. He was on a writing retreat. Already eight days have passed in which I have written nothing, in which I have not prayed or studied God's word. This is partly because of the temptations of the flesh, partly because I am tortured by other burdens. I'm like, that's the Luther quote I like right there. He was honest about it. And the invitation is like, if we're honest about the need to pray, let's ask the Lord for help in prayer. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll go on, you know, the tide will come in, it'll be good for a while, then we'll look and say, oh, I've, I've not been praying. It's been eight days. And we call out to God for more help. And the good news is for you though, Jesus comes and he does something drastic to change this whole thing. Daniel was laying a hold of shadows of this, but it's more concrete for us. Matthew 6, Luke 11, both capture the disciples saying this to Jesus when they see him praying. Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like you pray. How can we pray like that? And Jesus says something that totally revolutionizes prayer for all of eternity, for you, for me, for everybody. Jesus teaches to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father. It might be so common to us now that it gets past us. Wah, 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 wah. Never once in the Old Testament was God addressed as father in prayer. He was described as father three times. Well, in creating, sort of father as creation, creator. But not addressed as father. That is a in Christ reality after Jesus lives, is crucified, is resurrected, ascends to the throne, sends the spirit into our life. That At that point, in history, the Holy Spirit takes up another title than he had before. He is called the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ who comes into our life. And then it says in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8, cries out in us, Abba, Father. It's as if the Spirit of the Son is crying out, Father, in us. And prayer is simply joining our voice to his so that Reeve says in this little book, like prayer is simply learning to enjoy God as Father like Jesus enjoys God as Father, but not on our own. He sends his own Spirit into our hearts to cry out, to help us. So it's actually a matter of pressing in and enjoying him as Father. I have five kids, 
I don't know if all of them did this, but you may, you may experience this in your own family if you have children. Sometimes late grade school, early middle school, they experiment by calling their parents by their first name. Okay, Roger. What? Because that's not cool for me to do that. I get what they do. I get their this individuating. I get the, all that. I understand how the development works. Um, here's what I also understand. There are five people in this world that can call me dad. It's a I'd like to think it's a privilege for you to call me dad. It's certainly a privilege for me for you to call me dad. And so I just want to take a beat and say, do you understand, friends, the privilege it is to be able to call God Father? I think we can say that is the key to unlocking prayer for us. He's a father. Some of you had great relationships with your father, some not so much. This one's a great one. The places where your own father lacked, guess what? That was a pointer to the way that our true heavenly father is. If your father was great, that's also a pointer to the way he is. You know, the lack is the, the, the negative uh, exposure of it, the positive, keep on going. This is a privilege. It is a costly privilege. This ability to call God Father comes out of our union with Christ, which requires the death of the Son. The purchase is the privilege for us to call God Father. It's a high privilege. It's the most value. It's, it's a privilege that does not have a value that we can calculate. It's wonderful. And it totally transforms prayer. Daniel had a sense of this. We have more of the fullness of it. Verse 11, these men came by agreement, by secret agreement, and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So they're staking him out. We're gonna really fly for the rest of this passage. Okay, uh, they came to capture Daniel when he was praying. Remember when Jesus was captured, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 12, they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, well, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. So the totally imputing motive he doesn't care about you, king. Take it personally. And then probably some nationalism going on here. One of those exiles from Judah. He's here. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. If you remember, when Jesus came before Pilate, Pilate was trying to figure out, how do I get, this guy's not guilty. How do I get him off? And he labored till sun went, till the sun went down to rescue him. Verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, uh, know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So Darius knew this was a trick, but he had, at that point, he stood by the law. Verse 16, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, which they thought was a tomb. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and nothing, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting with no diversions, and so on and so forth. 
Ancient Near East kings kept lions for, they, the thought is for the sport of hunting lions. They go on lion hunts. Doesn't seem wise to me, but that's what the archaeology says. So it's probably a stone enclosure with a gate and then a spot on the top to throw food. They throw in Daniel as food, lower him down probably, lowered him down. And a large stone is rolled over the opening of what would thought to be a tomb. Should sound familiar. The king puts a stamp on it, a signet ring, which sounds familiar. Both of those are from Matthew 27. Then Darius has a sleepless night. Verse 19. At the break of day, the king arose and went in haste, ran to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Not to miss two more Jesus connections, we have somebody running to the tomb at the break of day. And here is the other empowerment for distinguished faithfulness. God promises his gracious presence, but as Daniel found out there, as we find out often, some of you are finding this out right now. Sometimes we're not aware of his presence until we're in distress. Sometimes we're, even with that prayer, praying before the Lord, we're not aware of his presence until we are in distress. And the clear invitation here is as we're in distress, let's look for his presence. Let's cry out for his presence. The king comes to Daniel, and I love it. Daniel is still respectful. You just threw me in here. Oh, king, live forever. Yes, he has delivered me. How did he deliver him? It's not that the Lord distracted the lions. He didn't make them sleepy. He didn't put a barrier between them. He shot the mouths of the lions. He exercised authority and force against their natural inclination to devour and destroy. That's what he did. And oh, by the way, how did he do it? He sent an angel, right? No, he sent his angel. His angel. That's almost certainly a reference to the angel of the Lord who in the Old Testament, most Bible-believing scholars would say is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus himself showing up to exercise power to stop destruction of his people. He shut the lion's mouth. 1 Peter 5.8 calls Satan a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Psalm 22, that Jesus apparently recites when he's on the cross, the one that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you read down a little bit, you have Jesus saying, many bulls encompass me, the strong bulls of Bashan surround me, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He repeats it again down in verse 21. This is a picture of a new and better Daniel who didn't actually have the mouth of the lion shut for him, but who shut it himself for us. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So there's a connection between the innocence of the person and the deliverance of the person. Again, think of Jesus. No harm done, not a bone was broken. 
And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That does not typically make the children's storybook Bible. And this is not, again, remember what's described and prescribed. God's not saying, and, and, Nebuchadnezzar, or, or, and Darius did this. Good job, Darius. He did this, right? Because he's a pagan king. That's what he does. Although it is, I do wonder if there's not a little sign here that if you set yourself against the, the redemptive work of God, shutting the mouth of destruction if you open yourself up for destruction. I don't know. Then Darius... Verse 25, King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Again, these guys don't understand. That's not how it works. You actually have to worship God. But anyway, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, or it could be in the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We're not sure. It looks like Darius broke the law of the Medes and the Persians. Maybe he spent a ton of political capital to do that. I'm not sure. I don't know why he did that. Maybe it's simply the reality that the law of man and the kingdoms of man will always eventually bow to the redemptive work of God. You could also have here a picture of redemption in the tomb, of judgment, and of uh, Nebuchadnezzar making, or shoot, Darius making a great commission announcement. Everybody should worship him. I'm not sure. Um, here's what we know. You're either in distress right now, or you will be in distress later. Those are our two options, I think. <laughs> this is what life is in a broken world in exile. Here's, here's, here's what's not an option. Being in distress by yourself. We go into the unknown. We never go into the unknown alone. We go in with one who has gone into a deeper, darkest death for us shut the mouth of all destruction for us and says, I will go with you now. It is hard to hold on to that. That is an intangible reality. We forget that. We pray and then we go away. We get stuck in sin and we can't remember it anymore. That's why God gives us the gift of a tangible reality right here that represents that and points to that over and over and over. This is not a table that's for perfect people. It's a people who know they need grace and that grace is found in Jesus. If that is you, if you are a follower of Jesus who knows grace is found in him, this table is open to you. I'm gonna pray and we'll invite you to come to the table.